It's good to be back. I was in the Holy Land last Sunday when Corey launched this series called the ABCs of Faith. And the week prior, I was attending a preaching seminar at two gorgeous congregations in downtown Minneapolis. The time away was rewarding and nourishing, but there's nothing quite like this sanctuary. There is nothing quite like this congregation. It's good to be back. My colleague, Roger Nishioka, spoke to the elders and the deacons of this congregation back in February. He reminded us that today we cannot assume that folks know the vocabulary of faith. We preacher types, we throw out words like grace and salvation with the same kind of familiarity that folks might say, I'd like a cappuccino while I work on my laptop. But in this day and age, cappuccino and laptop point to something that we can grasp. But salvation, grace, it sounds like hocus pocus. What do we mean by these words? This will be our project for the summer, to define what we mean by some of the key words in scripture and the key terms that have been passed down to us from our ancestors in the faith. You know, sometimes the grandparent will say, oh, don't sit on the divan. And the grandchildren will say, what's a divan? And the grandparent will say, well, it's the couch. And then you'll say, well, why didn't you just say so? We need, you see, a shared vocabulary. When my son was five, I spent some time in England on sabbatical, and when my son and my husband flew over, they were quite jet-lagged, but I got them up early on a Sunday morning to walk down the street to the little village church. And at coffee hour, a woman came up to my five-year-old and said, would you like some squash and biscuits? And he looked terrified. <laughs> And realizing that he was an American, she said, oh, I'm so sorry, would you like some juice? And would you like some cookies? We need a shared vocabulary, especially when it comes to matters of ultimate importance. Today, we begin with the word God. It was a bad place to begin because there is no adequate definition of God and if we had one, we would be wrong. All week long, I've been wondering why I thought it was a good idea to start with the word God. It's easier to say what God is not. God is not Santa Claus checking a list to see if we've been bad or good so that we can be eternally rewarded or punished. God is not a harsh judge who sends tornadoes on those who have sinned. God is not a distant creator sitting up on a cloud in the sky with a long white beard who simply set the earth to spinning on its axis and then left us alone to figure it all out by ourselves. So what is it that we mean when we say the word God? What do we imagine when we picture God? We went to India a few years back with the mission team to work at the Christian hospital Mangeli. 
They asked if I would preach each morning to the nurses as they gathered for chapel. I was so anxious, I was so careful with my words because most of the nurses had grown up speaking as their first language, Hindi, and many of the student nurses still practiced Hinduism. And I realized as I would approach the little podium for chapel that for many of these nurses, this was the first Christian preacher they had ever heard, and I had to be so careful that my vocabulary was accessible. What words could I possibly choose to open up the mystery of God? Scripture gives us a lot of words to pick from. God is like a rock, firm and solid and reliable. God is like a mother hen, compassionately tending to her flock. God is like a lover, brokenhearted when we turn away and scorn God's love. God is like an eagle who soars and hovers over us. God is like a warrior who defends us and protects us. But mostly in the Old Testament, God is hidden and unseen. No one can see God and live. When Moses asks for God's name, God says, tell them I am sent you. And so the ancient Hebrew people develop a custom of not ever speaking or writing the name of God. It is too holy. It would be too irreverent. Theologians in more modern times have come up with other phrases like a force or a holy mystery, a divine presence. Paul Tillich said, God is the ground of being. A more current author said, God is what is really real, or God is that something more. Now all these have merit, but don't they seem a bit abstract and not all that spiritually empowering? When the early church leader Paul began spreading the good news of God as revealed in Jesus Christ to those people who were living in the first century, Paul, too, struggled with how to speak about God, how to define God for folks who didn't yet know God. Now, when preaching to the Jewish people, Paul could claim that Jesus was a continuation of all that they had known in their religious family tree. Folks like Abraham and Sarah and Moses, they, he could say, this Jesus was one more great one like that, the image of God. But when preaching to the pagan people, Paul couldn't quote the Bible. And so how would Paul explain God to people who had never heard the ancient story of faith? This morning's scripture lesson from Acts is a snippet from one of Paul's sermons to the pagans. He's in Athens at the Areopagus, a place where the philosophers and the intellectuals like to gather to debate big ideas. You might think of the Areopagus as a precursor to the newspaper editorial room, or it was like a university symposium or maybe even a Facebook page where folks gather to debate particular ideas. There, at the Areopagus, Paul gives it his best shot to connect the people to God. Paul says, as your own poets 
have said, you see, he's quoting pagan poets dating from 600 and 300 BC. He's calling upon the tradition of the own pagan culture. Perhaps the poets that Paul quotes that day are those that they had studied in school, like you and I studied Shakespeare. Or perhaps these poets are ones that they had seen written on a Hallmark card. As your own poet has said, Paul explains to them, in God, we live and we move and we have our being. He takes what they understand to describe the God who can never, ever, ever be understood. He borrows from the pagan world to describe the reality of God because nothing is outside of the reality of God. I wonder then, if Paul was here today, what images Paul might borrow from our culture to point to how wide and vast and deep and enormous is the reality of God. Rob Bell wrote a book a few years ago called What We Talk About When We Talk About God. It's a little paperback book that I would recommend to you. In the book, Bell takes up the topic of science in the modern world. You know, for several hundred years, science and religion seemed to be at odds with each other. Science was about what you could prove and measure. And religion was about some kind of ethereal truth that no one could ever possibly verify. They seemed at odds with one another, forcing many modern folks to think that we had to choose to either believe in science or suspend rationality and believe in God. But Rob Bell in this book celebrates the most cutting edge discoveries that are now emerging in the world of science. He looks at a universe that spans 90 billion trillion miles and is continuing to expand and says that this expanding energy of the universe is a glimpse of the energy of God. And he looks at the smallest atom and now even the subatomic particles. And he says that, you know, we once thought that the electron circled the nucleus in a continuous pattern. But now we know that those electrons disappear in one place and reappear in another without ever having traveled the distance in between. Well, how does that happen? More and more, science itself is pointing to the reality of something mysterious that is unfolding in creation. Or as Rob Bell puts it, the line between matter and spirit may be no line at all. When you say the word God, or you hear the word God, what do you imagine? No matter what answer we give, our answer will be too small. I had an experience a few months ago that reminded me of how small my image of God can be. I was going to the hospital to pray with someone who was about to have surgery. I knew the appointed time for the surgery and I knew what time the patient was supposed to check into the hospital. And so I was going to time it quite right so that the patient could get settled in but not be asleep on anesthesia before I arrived. I arrived at the wrong moment. 
the nurse was still with the patient, getting him prepped, and so they said, could you please wait in the hall? Sure, I said, and I waited. And then someone motioned to me, now, come, now. And I slipped behind the flimsy curtain, and I was startled to see that both the anesthesiologist and the surgeon were still in the room. Now, my training had prepared me that the proper thing for me to do was to slip out and wait for the medical experts to do their work to not hold up the busy doctors on a day full of surgery. But they both looked at me. They wanted to stay for the prayer. And so we held hands. The patient, the doctor, the anesthesiologist, the patient's brother, and me. Together we prayed. And I realized, my God is too small. Medicine and spirituality are not two separate but overlapping realms. Rather, in God, we live and we move and we have our being. The doctor knew more about God than I did at that moment. The doctor knew that his hands were empowered by God and that his patient would not heal by his hands alone, but by God's energy and spirit rising up. Have you ever had a moment like that, when you realized that your God was too small? Maybe you were hiking in the Rocky Mountains, and you came around a bend, and you looked out at the vista, and it was so majestic that you were completely overwhelmed. Your breath was taken away, and you realized there was something so much grander in life than you had been holding on to prior to making that turn. Or maybe it was when you were holding a newborn for the very first time and you felt pulsing in your own veins a love that was more powerful than any love you had ever experienced in your life. Or maybe you were brokenhearted, bruised, overcome with sadness and the person who should have been absolutely furious with you came to you gently and offered a kind and forgiving word. Paul invited the people to look around at their own lives and to see God arising there. And then he pointed a little bit further beyond the pagan poet to a person who had been raised from the dead and some of them went, whoa, we're not so sure about the story of Jesus. Could God be big enough to raise people to new life? Could God's love be stronger than death? The modern poet and author Kathleen Norris says, God cannot be defined by a dictionary, but only by a relationship. Last week, we went to Bethlehem to see the place where Jesus was born. All week long, Mike Graves, our scholar-in-residence and the leader of the trip, kept reminding us that Bethlehem means house of bread. Of all the holy sites we visited, Bethlehem was probably the most disappointing. We parked our bus in an underground garage, and even in the parking garage, there were these touristy, junky shops where you could purchase some plastic icons of Mary made in China. 
we got on the escalator in the parking garage and rode up and then we began climbing the steep and crowded streets. On the way up, we passed a souvenir shop called John the Baptist Souvenirs. Now you know John the Baptist fled from the culture and went out in the desert and he would not want a tourist shop with his name on it. <laughs> we have finally arrived at the site and there over the cave where Jesus may have been born, three churches who sometimes bicker with one another have built worship spaces. The line of tourists was so long that we were unable to see the cave. And so we went outside and we waited in a courtyard and we listened to our tour guide. But I turned off the sound on our tour guide to listen to another tour group next to ours where an angry man was lecturing to his tour group and trying to scare them into believing in a God who said that they were horrible sinners. It made me so mad. We went back down the hill to our tour bus and I was thinking on my way back down the hill, if I ever come back to the Holy Land, I'm skipping Bethlehem. And then we turned a corner and out of a small white front chapel emerged a group of parents and their children. And there was a young mother pushing her young son in a wheelchair. His limbs were tiny. He was seriously deformed. But the mom was pushing her little boy up that hill to see the site where Jesus was born and I burst into tears. And as I did, I turned and saw another member of our tour group whose eyes were also spilling over with tears. There in that mother's love for her differently abled child, I saw a God so much bigger than the one I was carrying. House of bread, a great love the living God.